It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm sitting here virtually with Melissa today, and we've been talking for a bit about her passion and her advocacy work with the medical system. And Melissa, as you've been speaking with me about some of your stories, the inspiration for writing the book, for speaking about these topics, you know, I think it's very natural to start reflecting on how this impacts each of us. And I'm thinking about my experience with the medical system, which I've been privileged not to have very many issues. I've spoken on the show about seeing a therapist, as as you heard about Melissa in one of my episodes. And I actually had a wonderful experience with the therapist. But where I've struggled has either been my exploration trying to figure out my sleep disorder, which I have the privilege of it not being urgent. I have the privilege of it being something that I can kind of take my time with. But what I witnessed through trying to get some answers is how hard it is to get answers, Mm -hmm. how hard it is to ask for help and be met with sometimes doctors saying, I don't know, nothing's showing up. I'm running all these tests. You're fine. I mean, hearing that, but knowing deep down that I'm struggling with an issue, it sometimes feels a little like gaslighting. Like, wow. Totally is gaslighting. I'm experiencing something and a professional is telling me that I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's one thing when you experience that in a non-urgent way where you have the luxury of time and you can go see other specialists, you can put it on the back burner, you can try to figure it out on your own, which is essentially where I'm at. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole other thing when it's an urgent medical issue which is something that sounds like you've experienced a lot of. You've shared stories of your own stories with your mother and father's passing. When you say it's gaslighting, what has shown you that's what's going on here? You know your body the best out of anybody. And a lot of times, if a doctor cannot figure out what's wrong with you and tells you nothing's wrong and sort of gaffs off your symptoms, it's being medically gaslit. I had a situation in 2020 where I had significant abdominal pain And I went to an emergency room and the emergency room, it was during COVID. So you couldn't have anybody with you. And I know my body and I had significant pain and I was there for seven hours. They did a COVID test. They never drew blood and they never did some scans or radiology. During when the nurse came in and told me I was being discharged, that nothing was wrong as I was throwing up constantly and couldn't even get up to reach my phone. I said to her, this is ridiculous. And after I said that, she said to me, you know, with like two snaps, you're not going to get anywhere like that. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it says in my file, patient yelling at staff. So I became a code gray. If you know what a code gray is, a code gray in, in the medical field means like a combatant patient. So I became, they marked my file as a code gray because I made that statement to the nurse. What they didn't realize at the time is They drew up my discharge papers. They unplugged everything. I got up to go to the bathroom and I passed out. Thankfully, I passed out. When I woke up, the same nurse that deemed me a belligerent code gray was on one side of me. Another nurse was on the other side of me. And they were flooding my both arms with fluids because my blood pressure was 70 over 30. I was tachycardic. I was about 150 beats per minute, which is very dangerous. And they had to resuscitate me. Then the hospitalists came down. They had to change the entire file. The entire file said, patient has no abdominal pain. I couldn't move. I was in the fetal position. Had I been able to move, I would have picked up the phone and called 911 in the emergency room. I got admitted. The next morning, I went for emergency CAT scan. And suddenly, I had about 10 people in my room. And I was on morphine, and they couldn't control my pain. So thankfully, a trauma surgeon came in. And within 20 minutes, I was being run down to the OR. I have a lot of hair. They're putting a cap on my head as I was going in. They put a shunt in my bicep, like a catheter similar. If you have chemotherapy, you have to get a port. 
because I needed six transfusions of blood. And I woke up two days later in intensive care. Now, had I not passed out, I would have called my husband at three o'clock in the morning. He would have picked me up and I would have not woke up the next morning. And at the time, my son was 10 years old. So my doctor said, you would have been dead because I had so much blood loss. I had a GI bleed. So this was a doctor, she was actually a PA that just would not listen. And I begged, I cried, I was shaking. Did I curse at the nurse once? Yes, but I was in so much pain, I was dying. And a lot of people don't understand that you are the best advocate for yourself and your own body. You know your body the best. And I always try and tell people that one, you have to trust your gut, but sometimes you have to push back against doctors. You don't have to be disrespectful about it, but they're doing their job, but they just might not understand you at that moment. And this PA just, how she wrote no abdominal pain is beyond me. After it happened, I did write to the leadership of the hospital and the person in charge of the emergency room. And, you know, I got a, we're sorry, we messed up. Okay. But these things happen all the time. Like most medical malpractice cases are from misdiagnosis. And, you know, it's a scary thing. And like for your situation, while maybe they're not picking up something on a test, doesn't mean it's not there, you know? And that's what happens to a lot of people. They just get lost in the shuffle. I just posted on my Instagram story, and this is horrific. It was a young woman in the um, Air Force. And in 2021, she went, she was up in Alaska. That was her duty station. She went to sick call because she had severe abdominal pain. And they did a urinalysis. They said she was COVID negative, but they didn't trust the test. They told her to go back to the barracks and just isolate. A couple of days later, she still is in severe pain. She goes back. She literally had a big lump on her neck. So that meant that her lymph nodes were inflamed. So your body was fighting something. They diagnosed her with acute tonsillitis, a sore throat. Six months later, you know, and about five sick calls in between of being dismissed. Finally, somebody saw that her stomach was distended and they gave her a CAT scan. There was a 24 centimeter mass on her left ovary. It was stage four ovarian cancer. Young women, it's very rare for them to get ovarian. If they do, it's usually treatable. It's usually caught early and it's usually stage one or two. The more horrifying thing about it is during the time that she was not getting help, she made a TikTok video and it was a cry for help. She's like, my name is Emily, whatever. My command is X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to get help. I've been to this doctor, that doctor. Nobody's helping me. Da, 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 da. And at that time in 2021, I saw her video and I just said, how can I help? What can I do? I was breaking my heart. And I just saw from the Hunter 7 Foundation, they're a nonprofit that helps support veterans that have post 9-11 exposure related cancers. I just saw that she passed away a week ago. And I just felt so like sort of guilty because we lost touch. But I also felt so angry because, again, she was medically gaslit for six months. They take the cancer out. She went through all the chemo. It came back. And you see in her TikToks, she still never gave up hope. She was still fighting. She didn't give up. She was doing what she was told, but she was also adding holistic stuff to it. And she passed away, which is sad at 25 years old. She didn't deserve that. And the other part of it that was horrible is because she made the TikTok video, because she was crying for help, they court-martialed her. They brought charges against her. They were going to give her a dishonorable discharge. She was going to go to jail because of making that TikTok video and saying the names of the doctors that gaffed her off, as well as her command that gaffed her off. And now she's gone. And so now everything's too late. So there's a form that I have on my site now that if you just open it and you sign it, it goes to your local congressman or representative, you know, so they see it and they're kind of inundated because this should have never happened. When they did that first year analysis to her, the first appointment she had, they found malignant cells in that urine, but they never followed up on it. Had they followed up on it, would she have survived? Probably. It wouldn't have grown to be a 10 pound tumor, you know, and this happens all the time. It happens every day. It happens in the veteran community, it happens in the civilian community. And what I do and what I'm passionate about, and most of it is because the way my mom passed away and the things I've been through and things that 
I just went through at the end of the year with my dad. It's like, if I can help other people not have to go through what me and my family went through, whether it be through blog, whether people reach out to me through DMs and Instagram, whether it's through a checklist that I provide on my website of questions you need to ask. Like that's my goal. My goal is to not have people go through what we went through and just to help them navigate the healthcare system. And it's in a post COVID, what I call a post COVID hangover. Everything's worse now than it was in 10 years ago. There's less availability. There's less time. There's less specialty appointments. Like right now in where I live, if you need to get a specialist appointment, you're probably looking at a six-month wait. Six months, you could be dead. So it's really a problem now. And a lot of people will like, you know, if they say they're having GI problems and they try and go to a gastroenterologist and they say, okay, it's August now, we can see you December 1st. A lot of people will just take that, well, I guess that's the only thing available and I just got to wait. And no, you should not wait. You should keep get on the phone keep calling, look in your area for another provider. Like you have to keep trying and you can't give up because when those kind of things happen and care is put off, that's when you find out that something's really wrong because it took too long for you to get the proper care. Wow. The question that's coming up for me is why is this all happening? It's when you bring up the context of the post-COVID time, it sounds like part of the why, but It also seems like things have been challenging for a while. And for context, are you seeing this mostly through the perspective of the U.S. medical system or is this a global issue? No, I get DMs. I mean, there's always that. I was asked a question recently from like Good Morning Portland or something. And the guy asked me, you know, do you think we should have health care for all? And that's always a doozy, right? Because I worked in the reinsurance industry for 20 years. So I understand insurance very well. I worked on the property casualty side, but I also understand life health. In a perfect world, it would be great if we had healthcare for all, but it's not realistic because I've talked to people from Canada. I've talked to people from the UK that have those platforms and those availabilities and the wait is longer. So it's like, I think as far as why things are going on in the States, the way they are, it's because the doctors, and and I've even heard this from, I see probably five doctors pretty routinely and you become friends with them because you've known them so long. And one of them said to me a couple months ago, he's like, you know, Missy, we got to see people every 10 minutes. And I know you because I've known you for years. I know your file. I know what you've been through. I know your health issues. He goes, but you know, the other 80% of people I don't know their names. I don't know their background. I don't know, you know, what tests they've had. And the other flip side of that, and this is what I, again, I try and tell patients and people that follow me and my readers, you almost have to go armed with a piece of paper for a doctor's appointment that says, how long have I had these symptoms? When do the symptoms get better? What makes them worse? What medications have they helped? What specialists have I been to before? And what tests I've had done so they're not redone or that if they have to be redone, they can compare them. But white coat syndrome is a real thing. That's when people see a doctor in a white coat and they see it as a figure that makes no error, a figure that whatever they say goes, they're smarter than you. Of course, yeah, they went to medical school. They're definitely smarter than you. They know more things than you, but you know your body and you have to hold them accountable to treat you the right way and to not ignore what you're saying. And it's not easy. And a lot of people don't have that understanding or fight. And that and that's what I try and give people the tools to understand what they have to do to get the right treatment. And I'm so grateful for that work because as you're describing that, I'm recognizing how much ignorance I have. And I'm generally a prepared person. I yeah. think about what I want to share with the doctor. But there's still, I don't even know to write down, to bring with me, to request the, you know, like all of these things, it feels confusing. And I think maybe it's because to your point, I'm waiting for the doctor to ask me a question. I'm waiting for the receptionist to give me the form to fill out. I'm waiting for somebody else. And it ties into all this waiting that you're describing. If we wait too long, it become too late. And yet, you know, how can we do better if we don't know better? Mm -hmm. So your advocacy is so important because you're putting this information out to people that they don't even realize they need to know. Yeah. You know, you have to, it's almost like this is where I've written for some physician magazines and stuff. And, you know, this is the way I look at it. If you're going to buy a new car, you research the car. Do they break down? 
Do they, what's their maintenance? You know, how long do they usually last on warranty? You should do the same with the doctors you select. If you Google a doctor, you can see what people think of them. So you really should shop doctors. The other thing is one thing that happened when my mom was diagnosed with ovarian, she was getting a four-day inpatient chemotherapy. And my sister and I are very different. She's very conservative, which is great. She's always on time. She's not a procrastinator. You know, she's a list person. I'm the total opposite. I'm like, whatever comes at me, I'll get to it. I'm not always organized. I have a trucker's mouth sometimes, you know, so we're opposite in that way. But we work together in stressful situations, which is a good thing. So when my mom was getting the inpatient chemotherapy, you know, I got a text from my sister and it said in the subject line, and again, she doesn't curse, she said, terrible. And so with that, I Googled the drug that my mom was being given, which was called Ifosamide. And I Googled what happens when you get this drug. And I left my job. I went to the hospital and my mother had every symptom of chemotherapy, toxicity, except coma and death, every symptom. So it was Labor Day weekend. And I knew that her oncologist had a boat and it's near a lake. This is the way I think, right? So I'm like, I called him up. I said, you need to come over to the hospital, look at my mother because I think she's toxic before you leave. Cause I knew he was going to be gone for four days. And he came in and he took one look at us. He took one look at my mom. My mom opened one eye and he's like, she's fine. And, you know, we were like dying inside because, you know, this was after she got the surgery. So this was called a cleanup chemo. So of course we're trying to do everything to save her, everything for hope. And we trusted that she's okay, right? The next morning, I had befriended a lot of the nurses on the floor. And that's another thing that you need to do. The nurses are the connective tissue and what makes a hospital run. You always be nice to your nurses. I've probably in my lifetime only met two nurses I didn't like. They can make or break your case. Because befriended the nurses on the floor, my mother had been admitted a bunch of times. One nurse called me up and she said, I have orders to hang another bag for your mother. This isn't the Connie that I know. Please come before I do this because I don't want to do it. This isn't the Connie that I know. So she actually probably broke protocol. She probably broke the rules, but God, did I thank her, right? Because that's why you go into medicine is to help people not harm them. So I went, I rushed over there. And again, it was really bad. Like she was hallucinating. She could not stop throwing up. She was delirious. She was tachycardic the whole nine yards. So I call the oncologist's office. One of his partners came in. He comes in again. And now my dad came over too. My sister, three of us were there. And again, he looked at my mom and he's like, for Connie, we're going for hope. You know, she's got to get through this. We have to be aggressive. Da, 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 da. Again, stupid me. You know, we all said, my mother said, okay, we hesitantly agreed. The next morning I get up early in the morning. I go to the hospital. I find my mother flat, her arms hanging off the bed. She's got throw up coming out her mouth. There's no nurse. She could have aspirated and it was horrible. So at that point, I'm like, you know what? Now I don't trust you. It's a wrap. It's done. So I slept, my sister and I stayed there and Monday afternoon. So that was um, Saturday to Sunday to Monday, Monday afternoon at around five o'clock, the original oncologist came into my mother's room. I was leaning up against the bathroom and he looked at me and said, you're right, she was toxic. And the first time I said that she was toxic, which was day one, he told me to stay off the internet. He's like, just, just stop, Missy, just stay off the internet. Four days later, the same man comes in, he says, you're right, she was toxic. And I'm like, you blank, blank, blank. I'm like, I work in the reinsurance industry. This is your job. And that was two weeks. She doesn't even remember because she was poisoned. You know, that when you get toxic from chemotherapy, you are poisoned. She's lucky she survived it. And unfortunately, any gusto or any hope or any grit that she had left in fighting this beast of a disease after she was toxic was gone. Her spirit was broken. It was just gone. And 31 days later, after she had gotten the operation, all of the cancer was back and it was back with a vengeance. So it was a very aggressive very aggressive cancer. So where I'm going with this is that, again, Google can be your best friend or your worst enemy, but in situations of disease, mental health, whatever, you have to be an informed consumer of the care that you're going to get. That includes what your prescriptions are, what possible side effects there can be, 
and everything else. And, you know, I'm not happy that I was right because it was horrifying, but it just was another example of a family that was holding on to everything to try and save my mother, my father's wife, my sister's mother, you know, so we're all in this emotional state where you kind of like are trying everything possible to save her. But, you know, you're getting medical opinions that, you know, well, I'm the doctor, I know everything. And you're just a, you know, whatever you do, you do, you don't have that MD behind your name. So you can't be right. And, and you got you get blown off. And that happens all the time. It's so unfortunate and breaks my heart to hear that you've been through this and for anyone else who can relate. And you said that people go into medicine to help not harm, Mm. but it sounds like a lot of harm is being done. So it's confusing because, you know, I hope that it's not intentional. I hope that it's some other explanation. Like, do you think that doctors believe that they're helping? Like, are they ignorant of the harm that's being caused? It's like still one of those, how is this happening question? I think it's a couple things. Like, again, what I talk about, you know, there's a quote that a lot of people use. Like, I think people go into medicine with all the right intentions. I think that nurses by nature, they're caring, they're empathetic. They love what they do. I think right now our system is so broken and the people that make the revenue in the hospitals are forcing doctors to take so many cases at a time, it's impossible. And because of their expectations from the doctors, mistakes happen. And it's again, it's happening more and more. I'm not giving the doctors a pass because if you messed up, you messed up and you need to own it. But Right now, the system is so, you know, I'll just make up a number like, you know, your general practitioner has to see 50 patients a day. So do the math on that. How much are they really doing and how much are they really understanding? You know, in the hospitals right now, like when my dad was sick at the end of December, I would say at least 40% of the nurses on the cardiology floaters. Floaters, a lot of people, the traveling nurses, no matter what, it's in my opinion that there's a couple things that happen when you have a lot of floaters. One, they make more money than the people that are on the hospital payroll. Two, they don't have performance evaluations from the hospital that they're working in because they're temps, they're floaters. Three, they go where the need is. So if you're on the cardiology floor on Monday, you're working oncology on Tuesday, you're working post-op on Wednesday, all of those floors have unique idiosyncrasies that you have to understand in the patient profile. So if you're working, you're bouncing around like that, how good are you really at your job? You know, and what standards are you being held to? And the other thing is, and this is just normal corporate culture, if you're a nurse and say you've been in a hospital 25 years and you're up in the chain and now you have this person coming in that's a temp, that's a traveling nurse, she's making more money than you. She doesn't really know what she's doing possibly. There's going to be that grudge, I would say. And it's just normal. And that happens a lot. Like when my dad was ill at the end of December, we saw a lot of traveling nurses. And it begs the question of, again, like how much skin do you have in the game? They don't have a lot of skin in the game. You know, the same thing for teaching hospitals. Like people don't understand. Like there was a situation when my mom, she had bilateral DVTs, uh, deep vein thrombosis. Those are clots behind her knees and pulmonary embolisms in her lungs. She was in a cardiac unit. That's common with cancer. Cancer makes you throw clots. I went to see her after work and she was on like Ativan and pain meds. So she was like jacked up on, you know, she's tired. She was on narcotics, you know, the whole thing. And it was a teaching hospital. One of the residents came in and he asked her what her healthcare proxy was. And my mom was like, if there's no hope, I don't want anything. With that, he got up and left. I said, Ma, I said, you just told him if you have a cardiac arrest tonight, you don't want anything. She goes, no, I didn't. I said, yes, you did. And she's like, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. So I went, I got him. I had him sit down and I said, sir, what did you just hear? He's like, she doesn't want anything. No resuscitation. I said, absolutely not. What she meant by that was, and like a lot of people think, I don't ever want to have a vent. I don't want to be kept on life support. I don't want to be fed through a tube. That's what she meant. She didn't mean that if I happen to have a cardiac arrest tonight, leave me alone. But he didn't hear it that way. And he didn't ask the right questions. So I'm thinking, holy like, what if I didn't show up? You know, and then it gets worse because I happened to look down at her bracelet and, you know, you hear these stories, but this actually, this was my mother. 
I look down her bracelet and it has another woman's name on it. That bracelet is your health record. That's your allergies. That's your meds. That's your diagnosis. And, you know, it was late at night. I had my Blackberry on me during Blackberry times and I didn't think to take a picture. I wasn't thinking litigation or any of that kind of crap, but I got the head nurse and, you know, they got rid of it real quick. But I said to my mother, you know, after the next day, I said, you could have gone downstairs for like an angiogram or something at two o'clock in the morning and wouldn't even have understood or known it because you had another woman's barcode and medical file on your wrist. That's like a big mistake. You know, like you say to yourself, how the hell does this keep happening? But it does. You know, some people don't have, they just don't have people that are going to show up at the hospital. They're by themselves. Maybe all of their family died or maybe they have no friends or whatever. And, you know, I always say, if you have a loved one in the hospital, you have to go, you have to show up, you have to go there when doctors make rounds. They usually make rounds between 6 a.m. and 10 o'clock in the morning, especially if it's an older parent, they don't take it all in. They're so overwhelmed with their pain or they're scared that they're going to die or everything else that comes with it that they don't take everything in when the doctor's speaking to them. Like I saw that when my dad got sick at the end of December too. So like, you know, I just tell people like, if you have the ability, you have to show up. And that was hard during COVID because, you know, if you weren't vaccinated, you couldn't go. And I'm not vaccinated. So if I had to see like my neighbor got sick, I had to get tested and the test was only good for 72 hours and I had to get tested again because he had nobody. So I would show up for him and I had to actually lie and say I was his daughter because he had nobody. And it's like, it's just, these are real stories. And I guess it's a long-winded, your question of why. I think it's a bunch of things. And unfortunately, a lot of nurses are exiting the occupation because of what happened during COVID, but also because of the nurse patient ratios that are way too big. So they can't care for their patients like they need to. So a lot of them, I've met so many that are just exiting and doing things differently because they can't take it. And if they can't be at a hundred percent for their patients, they don't want to be 50 because when you're 50, things happen that are bad. So it's just a bunch of that stuff I think that's going on. And then you know, add the economy, add this cost of healthcare, add people that couldn't get scans, mammograms, whatever, like physicals during COVID because they weren't doing those kind of appointments at that time. So that's another thing that's happening. Like people, when they are presenting now in 2022, 2023, because almost two years was lost of, you know, maybe you needed to follow up on something, they're presenting an emergency room staged out with disease. And it doesn't have to be cancer. It could be diabetes. It could be heart disease. It could be anything. And it's just been like a snowball effect on everything. That's my opinion. You know, the more you talk about it, the more stories come up to mind. One quick one is you reminded me of a a family member who was impacted by a really unfortunate accident. And when they were in the hospital, they also got the wrong treatment and they were going to be transported to a different facility or something. And the accident had involved massive body pain to the point where this family member of mine, any movement was Mm -hmm. extremely painful. Yeah, And they put this family member on a stretcher or something and brought them into like a moving vehicle. And I don't remember exactly the details. If my family member said something before they left or like after they got somewhere, like, where are you taking me? And that's Mm -hmm. when they realized they had the wrong patient. So my family member was suffering because of a mistake. And sometimes to your point, you can be that person and not ask questions because you're assuming that they're doing what they need to be doing. You're assuming that didn't mistake you for someone else. It's so easy Mm -hmm. for these to happen. And I think sometimes when we hear them in stories like you're sharing, it's easy to say, oh, that'll never happen to me. But like Mm -hmm. when it happens to you or one degree away, Mm -hmm. like you and I both experience, it's just like, wow, it's not as easy as you think to avoid Mm -hmm. these things. Something else that came up earlier, Melissa, that I wanted to go back to that I can also relate to and, and didn't really know what to do myself. I'm curious about your advice or perspective. Another mystery of my body is I seem to have food intolerances. I've Mm. had several allergy tests and doctors have told me I'm not allergic. And I recently went through a round of testing and went to see a specialist. And it was such a horrible experience. 
I could go on and on about all the bizarre treatment I received. And I somehow ended up looking at their reviews online. Mm -hmm. And Melissa, I realized almost every review was telling a similar story. And these people are posting online about their bad experiences with their doctors. And I kept wondering, how are these doctors still able to practice? I haven't left a review yet. I'm still trying to decide like what I would want to say. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking how many people are like me who also had a bad experience and haven't even shared it yet. So I'm assuming that that most people are having a poor experience like I did. And yet it's still happening over and over and over again. How does that continue? How are doctors able to get by? You know what? There's not a lot of accountability and that's the problem. Like, so for the situation, you know, with my dad at the end of the year, he had uh, end-stage congestive heart failure. So he was terminal. His healthcare proxy was he wanted to die at home. He was a 50-year fireman, so he even had a ride. He had an ambulance that was willing to pick him up. So over the course of four days, we put hospice, palliative care, social worker, everybody on notice. Come on, let's get the ball rolling. My dad wants to go home. And this started the day after Christmas. So on the 26th, you know, Scar got the ball rolling. And again, nothing happened. Next day, you know, he still wants to go home, but he's starting to, I could see he's starting to decline. So, you know, come on, guys, we need to get this ball on the road. Then come Wednesday, again, he's getting worse. And at one point I asked the nurse and my dad, again, he would never be honest with pain because, you know, he's that man's man, right? And when they asked him what his pain level was, he said eight out of 10. And for my dad saying eight out of 10, that meant it was 20. So I asked the nurse for Tylenol and she told me it would be three hours. And at that point, I actually, besides watching my dad actively die, I had like a mini, I would say probably had three panic attacks in my life. I probably had a panic attack because I was in the bathroom. I kicked the door shut. The nurse was right there. I kicked the door shut. You know, it wasn't my best moment, but I lost it. I mean, I had Tylenol in my friggin' pocketbook and you're going to tell me it takes three hours because you're doing a shift change. And that's not acceptable. So roll the tape forward. You know, the hospice coordinator was two doors down from my dad's room. Three times on that day, I knocked, you know, any updates, any updates, any updates. My sister would text, you know, we're trying to work it both ways. And they just would say, we're working on it. We're working on it. No answers, ignoring us. So I told my sister, you know, this is the New Yorker in me. I said, um, watch. I said, I'm going to go plant myself by the elevator. And I said, I bet her day ends at 430. I bet she leaves and she does not get back to us. Sure. I sit by the elevator see her with her jacket and her pocketbook and she's leaving. And I'm like, excuse me, remember me? What's going on with my dad? Like what's, what's taking so long? He's suffering with that. Now she can't leave. Now she's got to talk to me. Now we're this close together. And she's said, we're going to get you a private room. And I said to my sister, I said, we're not going home. And she's like, Bullshit. and I'm like, Alicia, we're not going home that we didn't go home. But the biggest issue was my dad was rapidly declining, rapidly in organ failure. They got him the private room. Again, if you've ever seen somebody actively die, it's horrible. That's what hospice is for. That's what comfort meds are for. They're to help you move through death without suffering. 48 hours into having the private room, a little less than 48 hours, no comfort meds. At Thursday night around 11, I begged the nurse to call the on-call doctor and say, can you please call him in something because, you know, he had already had the, what they call the death gurgle. He had the agitation. He was horrifying. And she got an Ativan called in. That's a benzodiazepine. It was a pill. My dad lost the ability to swallow. So why the frig did you call in a pill? And then she tried to buy time. And she said, look, my sister and I in the face and said, it's not the death gurgle. It's coming from his lungs. It's not coming from his lungs. We saw it with my mother. It's a known thing. It was absolutely not. So the next morning, the on-call nurse comes in, the head nurse comes in, and I had my head in his hand. And you know, I had been crying all night and my sister went to let his dog out. And she said to me, you know, I really wish you and your sister had made this decision yesterday. And then my head exploded. I'm like, we friggin' made this decision Monday. You put a DNR bracelet on him. You took off his cardiac monitor Monday. It's Friday morning at eight o'clock. Are you out of your mind? You know, so she left the room pretty quickly and probably a good thing she did. Palliative care came up, nurse practitioner, and she took one look at me, took one look at my dad. And she's like, I'll call the meds in now. And I said, how long? And she's like, five minutes. And I'm like, no, really, how long? The pharmacy's two floors up, two floors down. And she's like, five minutes. It took about an hour. 
I had already seen the, probably the worst of the worst. And it was so bad that I put my phone on and I was playing music, like music that I thought he would like, like 50s music to drown out the noise of him dying. So he passed away and I wrote to the hospital. I'm like, again, another tip for anybody that's listening. Everybody's, most hospitals are on electronic files and they're available in a portal. Get those files yesterday, download them yesterday, because if something happens like what happened to me, and my dad, you're going to need those files if you're going to write a letter and try and hold people accountable for failing. I wrote a letter to the CEO of the hospital. I highlighted all his medical records and they did get back to me and say that they did mess up. They failed to manage his pain. They tried to use an excuse saying that we just started offering hospice to our community, which is a bunch of because they actually have an award on their website in 2019 for palliative care. And hospice has been accepted for Medicare since like 1982. It's not something new. It's not a new treatment. It's not an experiment. And quite frankly, it's unforgivable that he suffered. He didn't deserve it. And that those doctors that failed, that hospice coordinator that failed, that social worker that failed to do their job need to be held accountable. So in having discussions with these people, you know, you get letters from the patient advocate. The patient advocates, they're, they're really nice people. They try and do the right thing. So I've gotten about six apology notes from different patient advocates, but I called one of them up and I'm like, listen, I know you're just doing your job and I know you're just the messenger, and, but you ha do not have the ability to make change. You're just the messenger. I appreciate your sorry, but quite frankly, it's too friggin' late. So I'm still going back and forth with them because I am not going to let them get away with it. It was a grave error. There's something called the Patient Bill of Rights. I don't know the exact number of them. Maybe there's 20. If there's 20, they did not do 17 of them. You know, there's things called standards of care. They did not adhere to the standards of care. And while it would be much easier for me to just grieve and go away, it's not fair. And it's not fair to anybody else that I know or other families because they're going to go through the same thing. It's a high probability the same thing is going to happen to them in one way or another. And if nobody speaks out, then change doesn't happen. Like in one conversation, one of them asked me, you know, what can we do to make this right? And I said, I was a manager for 10 years in corporate America. I had to do three terminations, which I hated because I hate messing with people's livelihood and families. But realistically, in my opinion, these doctors should not practice medicine. This social worker should lose her job. This hospice coordinator should lose her job. My dad suffered because they did not do their jobs, you know, and it's still an ongoing issue with me. And I'm not going to stop until I feel like his suffering was not in vain because it's just not fair. And people don't realize that, again, when things like this happen, it's not easy to write a letter. It's not, some people just don't have it in them, but you just have to, because it's the only way you're going to see change, you know, and those kind of things, those kind of grave errors are not okay. And at one point, you know, after they had given us the comfort meds, one of the groups of doctors that we were dealing with for the week took my sister and I in the patient lounge and they apologized to us. And they're like, this should have never happened, you know, blah, 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 blah. But again, it was too late. I sat there and watched and held him and begged and cried and did everything possible to try and comfort him. That's like my dad. That's somebody you look up to. That's your, in your family, that's like the strong guy, you know, and to see him in that state helpless. And I almost to a point, I feel like I failed him because I couldn't get the job done. And I'm a big mouth. I'm a bitch. I will not stop. And I sort of feel like I failed because he did suffer and I got to live with that. But I also know that I'm not going to let it go either until things change. And that's just going to be. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the advocacy. You are making a difference right now through this conversation even if it's just me. And I want to ask, Melissa, given the weight of these experiences, I mean, these are traumatic things. You've mm -hmm. shared stories that your personal experiences with the medical system, plus both your parents. Mm -hmm. How do you handle this? How do you navigate your own mental health given the weight of all of this, given all these big emotions? After my mom passed, I was textbook depression, acute anxiety, PTSD, just from watching. Like I would be driving in my car to work and I would be like, I'm talking to you right now and I just saw it. I see her on the couch dying. Like those kind of images never leave your brain. So because I have a master's in psychology and I worked in psychiatric emergency rooms and step down houses and, you know, other things, I was naive and dumb and I did not seek treatment 
from a professional because I thought I could do it myself. Well, that was one of the biggest mistakes I could have made because I wound up messing up in so many levels. I got down to 115 pounds. I had a grandma seizure because I didn't sleep. I was not sleeping because the tape, the, the scene was constantly going on in my brain. It took me probably a year to go see somebody. I tried grief groups after she passed and it was good. But the only problem with that kind of therapy, and I've ran grief group therapy and it's very effective. But in my situation, every time I went, it was like every Tuesday of the week, it was almost like if you're going to an A meeting, you know, hi, my name is Melissa and this is how my mom died. So I did it for about a month, but because I had to keep starting from square one, it just was too much for me. I did go to a psychiatrist and I wound up staying with her for like six years and she was very helpful. And I'm glad that I did go see her because I was, my sister handled the loss of my mother much better than I did. My dad handled the loss of my mother much better than I did. I was angry for a lot of years. And when I mean angry, I mean like, I remember one day I came home from the hospital and it was late at night and I had a toddler at the time and my husband asked me a question. And I was just so like in my head of what was going on. He asked me, he goes, uh, does it bother you when I talk to you? And I said, yeah, I was like a complete bitch. Like people knew at my job that, you know, were sort of tiptoeing around me because I would snap at any minute. I got into arguments with people driving to work, you know, I was a show. My friends saw it, my family saw it, and everybody was worried about me. But You know, I eventually did get the help that I needed to get and it was effective. And as far as like what happened with my dad, I think that I'm able to handle it better because, you know, it's 10 years later and it doesn't suck any less. But once you lose one parent, that's, I think, the biggest shot. And then when the second parent goes, it's, I don't want to say it's less of a shot, but it's a little easier because you've been through it. My mom's was totally different because it was an eight month watching her fail from cancer. My dad's was like from December 13th to December 30th. So it was quicker. But the difference was when my mom passed, she was in the home. So my sister and I were managing and the nurse came once a day with my dad. And I don't know if it was because he's a man or if it was because of the nature of his disease or the nature of how the organ failure affects the body. It was a lot more traumatic in watching just because of the nature of how he died. Like I have talked to 30-year hospice nurses. I've done podcasts with them. Intern doctors told them what happened and they just have no words for it. They're like, I can't believe this happened. Like how the hell did they make that big a mistake? And it hasn't been easy, but you just figure it out. Like everybody grieves differently. There's You get those moments, you know, they hit you between the eyes when you least expect it. But I also have, he just turned into a teenager, so I have to be strong for him. He's such a good kid. Like I, when my dad's funeral was, it was like a fireman's funeral, which it was wonderful, but it's also, it pulls at your heartstrings even more because it's so formal, you know, the fire trucks, the people in uniform, the flag, like all that stuff. It's huge. You know, he was my rock. I mean, my husband was my rock too, but my 13 year old son was my rock. So it's just, uh, I guess I'm lucky to be surrounded by people that love me. And I guess the only way I can answer that is that I've just been through it. And that's kind of how I figure it out, I guess. Well, that leads me to something else that was coming up as you're sharing that, which is, you know, there might be people who are listening who have gone through this and they can relate. And there might be people who are listening to this and feeling like afraid of going through this, but grateful that you've been through it to share you know, some tips as you do in your book, Not in Vain, as you do on your website, as you do when you're speaking on podcasts or Mm -hmm. interviews. But the other question I would love to know, especially because it related to my life right now, which is how to support someone else when they're going through this. I shared with you privately how a family member of mine is going through a really tough time without getting into details publicly. I'm likely going to see this family member in a few weeks And I've been wondering, like, how can I show up for this family member? Mm. While you might not be able to answer that because everyone's different, I would love to know, Melissa, what were ways that people showed up for you that were most helpful during these times? It's weird because 
you know, there's the stages of grief, right, that we learn in psychology. And they say that everybody goes through them. But I don't buy that because I think that, yeah, you might go through some of them, but you don't go through them in any particular order and you don't go through them. Sometimes you don't go through them at all. As far as support, my family showed up. My best friends showed up. Again, he was a fireman. So, of course, all of his fireman buddies showed up. But it all depends. Like, you know, I know when I lost my mom, I was probably talking to my best friend on the phone every day. You know, she would check in on me. And it's a hard balance because sometimes in my experience, when you're grieving, you don't want to talk about it. And also to your point, you don't know what to do. Like you don't know what the right thing is to do and you don't want to trigger somebody to feel worse. So it's a very fine line. Like when you're in that line in the funeral home and everybody's coming up to you and saying, I'm sorry, uh, my condolences. And then after the sympathy cards stop coming, then that's when you're by yourself. That's when I guess the rubber hits the road because when you're going through the planning of the funeral, the funeral itself, the, the burial, the wake, all that stuff, you're not with me. Like you're just going through the motions. Like you're there, but you're not there. I can't explain it. So I would just say that there's no right or wrong way to support somebody that's depressed or has lost somebody. You know, sometimes they want to talk about it and you just got to listen. Other times it's best to maybe change the subject and try and do something. I don't want to say fun because there's not a lot of fun you have when you lose a parent, but you know, changing things up. Maybe every time you see you go to a particular restaurant and it sounds stupid, but it really is effective. Maybe this time you go to a different restaurant or maybe this time you go to the beach or you do something that you switch up. Like I know that like when my mom passed, you know, she was always the person that made Christmas, right? And my, you know, my dad just, that just wasn't his gig. So one of the ways that we coped with it is we switched it up. You know, sometimes we went to my sister's house. Sometimes we brought food to my dad. Sometimes people came here, you know, on Easter, instead of planning a meal for everybody to come to the house, we went out to a restaurant. Like, you know, sometimes switching things up is a good thing. Or even sending a text that just showing that you're there. Uh, you might say, I know you probably don't feel like talking right now, but I just wanted to let you know when you are, I'm here and call me at any time, you know, whatever the relationship is. There's no right or wrong way of doing it. It's just being there for that person. You know, they may spend an hour hysterical crying with you, or they may just want to talk about what happened in the news. But the fact that you're there is what matters. One of my friends lost her father about a year ago. And around the anniversary of his passing, I asked her how she was doing. And she started crying because she said nobody had asked her or brought up her dad since his death. Just like you're saying, like there was that period of time. Yep. She was getting the condolences and then it just stopped and it was like it never happened. Mm -hmm. And it was such an important lesson because I hadn't thought about that and how sometimes just asking how someone's doing mm -hmm. after a period of time just to acknowledge mm -hmm. their pain yep. is so profound for them and, and rare. It's huge. And you know, you can't put a price on it. Like, again, there might be a million different ways you could do it, but it's definitely huge. And I can tell you anniversaries, birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, especially the first couple of years are really tough, you know. And the other thing is, like, I have friends that are my age right now that still have both parents. And I say it in my book, and I'm kind of embarrassed of it. Again, my book is totally transparent, open, and I do it for a reason, because I want to show people that they're, again, like you said, they're not alone. And after my mom passed, sometimes I would see people that were her age with somebody like their daughter sitting on a park bench, I'll just call it. And I wouldn't get mad, but I would get jealous. And I would be like, why did it have to be my mom? And then when I thought about it, I said, you know, that's so freaking selfish. Like, how could you even think that way? That's messed up. You shouldn't think that way. But I did feel that way. You know, you're walking through CVS and it's Mother's Day and the whole, everything's, the whole cards are all Mother's Day cards or the commercials on TV or what are you doing for your mom this day? Those are all triggers. Unless you've joined the club, I want to call it, of having, losing a parent, you really can't understand it. You know, I mean, I've had one friend that was like ridiculous and she's not my friend anymore, but you know, when my mom, she passed on December 4th and after she passed away, I was talking to this person and She's like, yeah, you know, me and uh, 
her husband at the time had a bet that she wasn't going to make Christmas. I'm like, did you just say that to me? Like you bet and you're actually saying it out loud to me that she wasn't going to make Christmas and you have both your parents right now. Like the frig are you thinking, you know, but you call it the club, but it's a shitty club to be in. But everybody, that's just life. Everybody's going to lose. Everybody's going to lose their parents. That's just life, you know, but unless you've been there, you don't really understand it. Well, I haven't joined the club yet. And that's good. I think it's good, but I think it's helpful to hear from someone like you, Melissa, that's sharing with so much transparency because it will happen one day and I'm sure it will be awful. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can really prepare for how awful it'll be, but hearing the stories and understanding it at least helps me have empathy Mm -hmm. and learn ways to be supportive. And I think so much of what you've shared today is not even specific to who you're losing or what you're experiencing. It's all about navigating it with some awareness, with Mm -hmm. direction, with a guide like you. And it's just such beautiful, profound work. And, you know, the title of your book, Not in Vain, to me represents that What you've been through, what your parents were through was not in vain, Mm -hmm. that something is coming up out of it, despite the suffering. You're pushing towards a change. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's my goal. In fact, you wouldn't believe some of the messages I get from complete strangers that are like, my son's in intensive care and they won't let me go in because it was during COVID. And, you know, this is a complete stranger. And I'm like, okay, do this, do that, you know, do this, you know, somebody from... England calls, I've just got diagnosed with ovarian cancer and I can't start treatment for seven months. I can't even tell you how many people reach out to me and I not spoke to one of them. And sometimes I'm a big empath. So I think it's a gift, but sometimes it's not so good because you forget to take care of yourself. But particularly with my parents and what they went through, it was the same hospital. After my mom passed, you know, again, I was pissed. I actually bought a book. I don't know the exact title, but it was basically the day in the life of an oncologist because I was so friggin' mad at him that I felt like I had to read something more about what they do. And it did give me pause because I thought to myself, you're in a job in which every day you have to tell an adult or a child that they have cancer. And that's not fun. And you don't know if they're going to make it or not. You know that the treatment is going to negatively impact them and possibly kill them. So even though I will never forgive this doctor, I did find empathy for what his job was every day because it can't be fun. And I also include that in the book. Like, you know, because I struggled so much, I tried to do a lot of introspection I tried to do a lot of, you know, again, what could I have done differently, even in the grief department? Like my mom and my dad is sort of night and day. Like it's August. If it was August after my mom passed away, I wouldn't even be able to have this conversation with you without crying. So now I'm just in a different space. And I think it's just, you know, again, because you've been through it, you know, and I hope you go as long as possible without having to go through it. Well, that's the thing. We never know. And we go through it in so many ways. Sometimes it's seeing the people that we love go through it as I have. And hearing your story is really helpful because sometimes people don't share with you a lot of details because they're not ready to, they don't want to. And I'm really grateful for the way that you have shared these tough times, that you've documented it and that you're doing it, I'm sure on some level for yourself to process it. And on another is to help. To be honest with you, when I first started talking about writing a book, my sister and my dad didn't want it. They did not want the transparency. They did not want my mom's suffering put out to the world. And it took them a while to understand. And, you know, they also needed to understand it was not done to make money. It was not done to become rich off a book. That's just doesn't happen. And when the reviews started coming in, I shared them particularly with my dad because some of them were like, they were great. I mean, it became a bestseller, you know, all that stuff. But the ones that really meant something to me were people that had had ovarian because they could totally relate to it. People that lost parents, people that have had depression and suffered from mental illness. You know, some of them, again, I had a choice to make when I wrote it with the editing folks that I work with, you know, because there are some F-bombs in it. And I had to make a choice because that's not for everybody. And on Goodreads, one person out of all of the reviews did not like it. Okay, I don't, that's good with me. But in order for it to be authentically me, 
I had to write it in a way that was the way I speak. And I love when I get the reviews that say, you know, when I read the book, it was as if me and Melissa were at a kitchen table and just friends shooting, you know, just talking. And I like that. And I'm happy about that because that's what I wanted it to be. And it took a while to get there, but I think I accomplished that. Well, you've definitely accomplished that with me today. And I, I love that phrase. I was trying to find the right words myself and the kitchen table is a perfect way to put it, Melissa, from the very moment that our connection on through this podcasting platform switched on and I saw your face. It was like this comfort level with a stranger, with someone I'm meeting for the first time and yeah. spending the last couple hours with. And it put me at ease. And as I said to you before we even started, like I want to see more of that. I want to see more kitchen table conversations mm-hmm. about the hard parts of life. And you are embodying that. To be honest with you, I like this, the way you craft your podcast more than like a national news interview, because number one, it's more authentic and personable. And the other thing is, you know, when you get these national news five minute segments, one, it's extremely stressful, but two, you know, they could throw you zingers that you're not prepared for. So I think this is a better way to try and get through to people and to try and help them is, you know, just in a more relaxed kind of just conversational platform. I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan. I'm a big UFC fan. My son does mixed martial arts. That's my goal is to get on him. And if you have ever listened to Rogan, that's how he does it. You know, he's just chill and people sit back and he lets them say what they want. He asks questions and, but it's not that hardened stop time. It's not that hard, you know, you can ask these questions, but you can't ask these, you know, I always say to people, you know, I'm totally transparent. I'm an open book. Ask me anything and I'll tell you, Um, there's not a lot that I'm not going to share, especially if it's going to help people. Well, I appreciate that. And funny enough, when I started this show in 2019, Joe Rogan style was exactly what I was going for. And so hearing that is very affirming because I want to say what you might about Joe Rogan, all the controversies. But what I admire is that he's willing to sit down and have long, in-depth, non-superficial conversations about a lot of different elements of life. And I think people resonate with that depth. They don't necessarily want the five minute, the 60 second, the TikTok video. I think there's a lot of people out there who are yearning for conversations with people like you, Melissa. And it sounds like you are pushing towards that. Your style through the book of just speaking as you are is so beautiful. And for the listener who is eager for more with Melissa, who wants to read the book, Right here in your podcast player, you can click on the description and find the link to it. You can find the link to connect with Melissa. I think it's mm-hmm. incredible what you do when people reach out to you, the effort you put into communicating with people during some of the toughest times, if not the toughest times of their lives, Melissa. And yeah, you are doing such a great service to the world. Your parents would be so proud and probably are still so proud wherever they may be in this I hope so. I universe. Sometimes I joke around my sister and I'm like, you know, cuz again, I'm the fighter of the family and I you know, I wonder what my parents are thinking, but I do, you know, he survived 13 years without my mom and I'm not a very religious person, but I do feel like they're together and he's finally happy and he's got his girl back. So, you know, that's what keeps me level cuz even if we can't prove it, that's what kind of keeps me level, I guess you want to say. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you have those good feeling in your heart. I think we need that hope amongst all the darkness we can feel during these tough times navigating the medical world. And again, Melissa, I can't thank you enough. I hope that the listener checks out the description. Also, there's a link to the full blog post version of this. If you want to go back and read it, there are quotes there. There'll be a video eventually when it gets up on YouTube. There's just a lot packed into this episode. So if you want to re-listen, if you want to share it, you can click on the link that goes to my website, wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Find this episode and you'll get all the resources, all the details in one place. 
And thank you so much, Melissa, for spending all this time with me today, sharing your story, connecting with me. It's been a beautiful kitchen table conversation. I appreciate it. And thank you. Actually, um, it was sort of therapeutic for me just to even have this conversation. So I appreciate that. What more could you ask for? Exactly. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.